Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. When you think of F1 in the early 2000s, it's impossible not to associate it with the dominance of Michael Schumacher and Ferrari. And they started how they meant to go on in the very first race of the 21st century, winning the 2000 Australian Grand Prix and getting off to a winning start for the first time since Schumacher joined in 1996. But it wasn't a complete sign of the dominance that was to follow in the years to come, as McLaren had locked out the front row and led the race ahead of Schumacher before both its cars broke down. This was still at the peak of the Ferrari v McLaren rivalry in this era, which spilled over into off-track matters as well, with McLaren boss Ron Dennis taking shots at Ferrari even after it won, and then getting into a war of words with ex-Ferrari driver Eddie Irvine during the weekend. Joining me, Glenn Freeman, to recall all of that and much more from the start of 2000 are Matt Beer and Mark Hughes, who was there that weekend in Australia. So, Mark, as you were on site for this one, you can have... First go at the opening question. When you think of the 2000 Australian Grand Prix, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, it was a very significant race for me because it was the first time I'd attended in my new autosport role as an F1 correspondent. I'd done a couple of Grand Prix before, including Donington 93, but uh, this was the first race the rest of my professional life, really. It was a, a new world and a beautiful place at which to start, you know, and Australian sun in the park. So, yeah, it was very significant for me. And I still remember it for that reason. Yeah, it's very cool. I, li- I like it when it's there's a personal connection for someone someone in the team. Now, Matt, I guess there was probably more chance of you being at Castle Coombe than Albert Park. But what stands out for you? <laughs> it, was, uh, it was sort of similar, but in a much less impressive way. So I'm pretty sure I spent this one in the Autosport office overnight at that point. I was in my first year at uni and doing most weekends freelancing on Autosport's website at a time when the digital revolution was such that the website and magazine didn't especially talk to each other. So we weren't getting anything from Mark for the website because he was reserved for the, the premier product, which was the magazine at the time. Um, so, But because it was my first year at a uni I was about to drop out of, I was basically drunk most of the time, living on toast and driving to and from club races that I was reporting on, all the Autosport office to do all-nighters. So I've got no detailed memory of this one whatsoever, other than just it being a, a fog and I I probably shouldn't have driven back down the M20 afterwards. I was going to say, as you laid all of that out, like, that does sound like a Larry weekend if you managed all of that across <laughs> Saturday and Sunday and then covered the race. Um, as always, we put the opening question to our audience on Twitter as well. So let's hear some of your responses. Claudio Amorosi points out this was Michael Schumacher's first Australian Grand Prix win. James Harvey, JB35 and Dan Mason say BAR scoring points for the first time. Simon Strang says those Jags are slow. Mark Martin, Steve Whitfield, Phil and Lewis Sudderby uh, chose Jensen Button's impressive debut. And Michael Golson says being excited to see this kid called Jensen Button that I'd read so much about. Lots of you mentioned McLaren's poor reliability here, including Piston Rod F1, Maiko Rian, sorry if I've got that wrong, uh, Alex Lamb and Reese Davies. We had a few nice ones about watching this race. 
James Llewellyn says, this was the first race I got up in the middle of the night for as a 12 year old, having only been a casual viewer beforehand. Despite it being a pretty dull race, I was hooked and haven't missed a race since. And Matt Burkett says, it's the first Grand Prix I remember watching, mainly because I replayed the tape over and over that my dad made when I was about three years old. I can relate to that. And Joe Graham says, uh, it was the first GP I ever remember. My dad let me stay awake for it. Uh, Australian Grand Prix, uh, if you were in Europe, they were a bit more in the middle of the night than they are now, for those of you who weren't watching back then. Make sure you get your questions in for the end of the series, where we'll answer anything to do with F1's V10 era from 1989 to 2005. You can submit them using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter or email them to BringBackV10s at the-race.com. That inbox is filling up quite nicely already in this series. And if you want early access to every new episode, plus bonus content and exclusive Q&A after the series has finished, then check out the Race Members Club. To learn all about the other benefits you get from the race and to sign up, head to the-race.com forward slash members club. And lastly, before we get going... Thank you to everyone who has joined our Twitter community already. If you'd like to remember the V10 era with nearly a thousand like-minded people, check out the link in, this, in the description of this episode to join the Bring Back V10's Twitter community. Okay, Australia 2000. One of the big topics of interest heading into the start of the year was the debut of Jensen Button, as we've already mentioned, who Williams had plucked straight out of Formula 3 after a shootout for the drive with Bruno Junquera. Button only had two seasons of car racing to his name, and that prompted some concern from XF1 driver and then ITV commentator Martin Brundle. Brundle said in ITV's season preview that if he was managing Button's career, he wouldn't have put him in F1 so soon. And he added, being fast in a Formula 1 car is relatively easy, but being a Grand Prix driver is a completely different story. Brundle expanded on this in the Daily Express newspaper. He said he had no doubts about Button's talent, but he felt it was two or three years too soon for Button. Brundle acknowledged uh, that he'd gone straight from F3 to F1 in the 80s, but he said a year in Formula Ford and a year in Formula 3 do not equip you to handle what Formula 1 throws at you. Brundle addressed uh, the claims that you can't turn down a chance when F1 comes knocking, saying, where is the risk in saying no when you are talented and young? He uh, he revisited these comments in ITV's season review at the end of the year, praising Button's maturity and how calm he was out of the car. Brundle said that in the first half of the season, he still felt it was too early for Button, but it was his performances at Spa and Suzuka late in the year that changed his mind. Mark, you know Martin well, are you, were you surprised that he was so forthright in believing it was too early for Button when he got this Williams drive? Yeah, a little. There did seem to be a bit of an establishment backlash of the Button hype, and there was a lot of Button hype around it at the time. But the guy looked sensational in his first test when he drove the Prost and went quicker than John Lacey. He was just as impressive in that shootout that you mentioned, which I attended. And after Patrick and Frank, William, Frank Patrick Head and Frank William had made their decision on the spot. They then brought Jensen up into the um, in the media centre, his eyes like a rabbit in the headlights, to face us lot as the new Williams driver. That you know that very day, so he just done the shootout. Right, you've done that. Right, we've made the decision. Go and talk to the press, and he, he soon settled down with within a few minutes. He was the sort of relaxed, jokey Jensen who we all came to know. And he, but his his self confidence was total. He knew already he was going to be a top driver. 
as though he, he didn't quite appreciate how significant his empty data banks would be when the going got tough, you know, especially the, in 2001. But for sure, he was ready for Formula One, not yet fully ready, not yet a fully rounded performer, but certainly ready enough to be there. Um, he was one of those big talents where that's just obvious. And uh, despite what Martin said at the time, I don't think you can lightly turn down an F1 driver. You can't be confident that the opportunity will ever come around again. But he was he was a new generation, Jensen, at the time, and his hobbies and interests were totally alien at the time. F1's very established, sort of corporate sheeny ones. He, he projected very much like a regular guy, informal, very relaxed, maybe not showing F1 what those inside it felt was its deserved respect. But it was F1 which was outdated, and, and in that respect, F1 it would it'd come to change, and as it did, so Jensen fitted in just fine. I think the thing that stood out for F1 as well was that we hadn't had a talent come through that rapidly for quite a lot of years at that point. Mm. And the closest comparison was probably Jarno Trulli. He only had like a year and a half, didn't he, before going straight into mm. Minardi? And it, you wouldn't say that was an unqualified success. You know, he, in 2000, he just got the Jordan drive, but it had not been wholly convincing in the Prost years up, to, up till then. Um, the for Button, though, for me, I'd, I'd initially tried to hook my whole career onto Jensen Button's rise. I, I grew up in Dorset. He grew up in Somerset. We were the, we were the same age, and I decided that you were best mates. Not in the slightest. I did go, I did go drinking with him at their free <laughs> meeting once and got completely destroyed. But um, mainly because I was hanging out with people who did know him. But I, I decided that my my ticket to motorsport journalism stardom was to convince the local papers that Button was the future. And they were a little bit jaded because Jamie Davis was from nearby and was underperforming massively in Formula 3000. And I remember the sports editor at the Western Gazette going, are you just telling me I've got to write more about this kid who always says he's about to do something and then doesn't? I was like, no, this one's genuinely, genuinely good. So I followed Button around a little bit in his Formula Ford season. Uh, and then my uh, late teens arrogance kicked in. I decided that um, just I kept turning against British drivers in my teens. I decided Mansell was rubbish, Hill was rubbish. And even before Button got to F1, I decided he was definitely overhyped as well, despite all the evidence <laughs> against that. Then you ghost wrote a column for Martin Brundle. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I'm pretty sure at the time I would have read what Martin Brundle said, was saying about him and gone, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, but all the evidence was, was that... Um, Martin Brundle from his much more knowledgeable position was wrong and, and so was I. Button had won the Formula Ford title at the first attempt, which not everyone did at that point. His F3 season was very impressive given that the Renault engine he had wasn't it wasn't a match for the Mugen Hondas. And Mark Hines won that F3 title and that was really impressive in Manor Motorsports first year at that level. So there's quite a lot of chat about him as well. But in hindsight, Button was the one with that proper sparkling once in a generation type of talent. And what those talents always then step up to do something really magical when they get their F1 chance. And that's exactly what I did in that first test. So yeah, all the evidence was pointing to Button being something very special. I was just being too much of a dick to admit it at that point because I, uh, like him, was was 19. <laughs> so what I take from that is that Nigel Mansell was also great and uh, you were just being a he cynic. Wasn't, he wasn't. I'm, I'm for, no, I'm 43 now. I'm still <laughs> right about that. Williams also had another key new element in its team for 2000, and that was the return of BMW to F1 for the first time since the mid-80s. Despite BMW being a powerhouse, expectations were pretty modest for its return. The, the engine was considered conservative, uh, it was too heavy, and in testing it was horrendously unreliable. BMW motorsport boss Mario Tyson uh, recently told a story on the uh, F1 Beyond the Grid podcast that uh, at a pre-season test at Jerez, 
BMW took 10 to 15 engines and before the third day of running, it, it had run out of engines because they'd all failed. Uh, that probably explains why nobody was talking Williams BMW up at the start of 2000. In F1 News magazine, Frank Williams said F1 would be a difficult road for BMW and he had a warning for its upper management. He said, in our meetings, it is obvious that although they do understand the task ahead, they are still going to be impatient for success. The top people have slightly high expectations. Frank said that he expected it to be tough for Williams to get into the top 10 because he thought the first five rows of the grid would be dominated by Ferrari, McLaren, Jordan, Ford's works team Jaguar and BAR, which now had factory Honda power. BMW brought Gerhard Berger into a senior role as well, and Berger was on message. He said ahead of the season that the first target was to qualify strongly in the midfield, and he said BMW should not expect too much in year one of a five-year deal. Matt, how big a deal was it for, for BMW to come back to F1 after all the success it had had before? And... With its reputation, and you know, this is a massive manufacturer, was it really possible for them to keep everyone's expectations in check by talking about just running in the midfield? No, not not at all. As of all the manufacturers that flooded in or back in at this point, I think the BMW expectations were highest. There was a lot of talk about how, how Toyota was going to spend more than any manufacturer had ever spent on F1. But BMW's record was so good. It, there was The memories of what it did in the turbo era were, re, were not... You know, they hadn't exactly gone stale by that point. And there was so much chat about how that BMW turbo engine was so impressive and so defines that era so much. And BMW's achievements elsewhere in motorsport were pretty impressive at this point. It had been such a major force in super touring. And then when it hooked up with Williams for its Le Mans project, this was, this was at a time of huge, huge manufacturer sports car prototype Le Mans interest. And BMW came out on top in, in that epic 1999 Le Mans where all the manufacturers were really, really taking it seriously. So add in the fact as well that it was hooking up with Williams and we're only at this point two and a bit years on from Williams being a dominant force and winning its last title there was every reason to ignore all the playing down and just go yeah they'll blow up some engines early on maybe it won't be quite right straight away but we're not we're a long way from a restricted testing or a restricted engine use or a cost cap era at this point in 2000 you just you just looked at that and thought with everything BMW's done in motorsport with everything Williams has done in F1 recently this is going to work pretty soon. Another change on the grid for 2000 was Rubens Barrichello replacing Eddie Irvine as Michael Schumacher's number two. Although don't tell Rubens he was number two. Uh, Barrichello was talking up his chances of challenging Schumacher and it was clear that unlike Irvine, he was going there with the aim of trying to win. He said there was nothing in his contract to say he was Schumacher's number two and he felt that if he was beating Michael on merit, he would be allowed to win. Schumacher said the situation was no different to how it was before with Irvine, adding, you cannot make a driver slower through the contract. The faster driver will be number one. Rubens is quite fast. Barrichello's comments attracted some outside interest. Frank Williams said it was interesting to hear Rubens talking of having equal status. Irvine said Schumacher would kill Barrichello, just like he did every other teammate. Um, which I assume is Irvine being incredibly self-aware. And uh, Eddie admitted that Schumacher didn't have number one status in his contract, only the use of the spare car. And we'll come back to that in a second. Jacques Villeneuve had an opinion on this too, saying Barrichello was talking like he is on another planet. And Villeneuve said, I want to see him say the same things when he realises the team is concentrated on Michael. Well, that moment did happen. Barrichello told Motorsport magazine in 2013... 
his contract didn't mention being number two anywhere in it. But uh, Ruben said, after a while, I began to discover there were a lot of things in Michael's contract that were not mentioned in mine. And one of those happened to be, as Irvine suggested, the spare car. Barrichello wasn't told that Schumacher had exclusive use of it. It was only when he noticed it was, uh, wasn't being alternated from race to race and that he never got use of it that uh, the team told him it was in Schumacher's deal that he had it exclusively. Mark, Rubens obviously went in, you know, wanting to use this Ferrari opportunity to be his catapult to, to stardom. Was he a bit naive with the approach he took walking into Schumacher's team? Yes, but he's an innocent believer and, and, and proven otherwise. That's Rubens. He's, he's not <laughs> a cynical, wily operator like Eddie Irvine. He, he wants to believe. He's a romantic. He dreams. And he went in there confident he could match himself against Michael. And don't forget, Rubens was pretty sensational on his way through the junior categories. The impact he made in winning GM Europe straight from Brazil, then F3 champion in his first year, straight to F1 in 93. Just a couple of races into that, the sensational drive in the wet Donington. He, he did that 3,000 season, didn't he, with, um, what was the team? Forget. But he, he had he had been pretty sensational up until that, that point. And since then, he hadn't had the machinery to win races, but he, he still held on to that internal image of himself as a, as a would-be world champion. And here was where he would be able to prove that you know, those credentials to the world. But Ferrari didn't sign him on that basis and it would never have said that, of course, but he was signed by Ross Braun and John Todd as, as part of the support network of Michael Schumacher. And the whole enterprise was a, a Michael Schumacher production. The, the move to Ferrari, the bringing him with, with him of Ross Braun and Rory Byrne, uh, putting him right in the very fabric of the team. Irv knew that, and after four years of making mega money and boosting his status massively, he cashed in, smart cookie that he is, and then Rubens rushed into his wake like an eager puppy, and um, <laughs> yeah, he, he had, to, he had um, a moment of realisation somewhere down the line. What Mark says about the kind of excitement around Barrichello earlier in his career, I think is, is really true, like the 93 Donington drive and, and the junior career was, was super impressive, and he was probably the first Schumacher teammate who'd had that reputation, even though it was like a few years removed. But his Stewart years have been very strong. 99 in particular, he'd been very, very quick, even though it wasn't him that won a race for the team. So I definitely bought into the the Barrichello romantic dream at the start of 2000. I thought, no, this is the first person in the world who could actually, just through sheer sheer raw speed, actually unsettle Schumacher a bit. And he is going there to, to try to do that. But I was sort of excluding the naive dreamer side of the character and excluding the Schumacher's got this whole team wrapped around him. They're not just going to see one fast lap from Barrichello and drop the whole structure that they've spent all these years creating. I think there were a couple of laps in practice and qualifying where I remember watching and thinking, yeah, look, he's going to do this. He's, he's near Schumacher. He's just like provisionally out-qualified Schumacher for two seconds. And then probably by about a quarter of the way into the race, it was, it was clear how this teammate relationship was going to go. Talking of not quite number two drivers, uh, David Coulthard was confident that he'd reinvented himself for the new season and he was hoping to assert a bit more power inside McLaren alongside Mika Hakkinen. Coulthard accepted that Hakkinen was the backbone of the team in terms of emotional support and he said that wasn't an excuse, just a fact. But he talked up improving himself through experience, being mentally stronger and physically fitter, saying what's happened in the past doesn't mean I can't change the future. Michael Schumacher got asked if he expected a stronger challenge from Coulthard in ITV's season preview. And um, the only way I can do this justice is to say, let's hear how he reacted. 
if you want to have an honest answer, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I should say no, because I don't see anyone changing suddenly, uh, unless Mika gets tired and uh, slows down. But uh, David is David, and he has his ups, he has his downs, and uh, he will not be a, a new man for whatever reason, suddenly. It may be the case his, this car suit him a little bit better, and therefore he can deliver more consistent times and, and job, but I would doubt it, honestly. What did you make of that then, Matt? Was Schumacher being a bit disrespectful there towards DC or just honest? Made me kind of pine for those days and that le level of brutality between top drivers because that was... <laughs> yeah, we'd have had a field day with that now, wouldn't we? That was glorious. I forgot Schumacher was like that. It was just... It wasn't... I don't think it's being disrespectful as much as just matter-of-fact honest in how he put that across and in context as well and now we're not discussing this episode but Coulthard had a very good 2000 season by his standards as it were and he was McLaren's lead hope in 2001 at this point he was coming off a very poor 1999 the only thing I can really remember him doing in 99 was being slower than he should have been in most races and ramming Hacken into a spin in Austria it was it was a really low ebb for him so in the context of what he'd just done I don't think Schumacher was being anything other than than honest and factual at that at that point. Yeah, I think it was quite characteristic of Michael that he, he didn't sugarcoat his observations about the competition. It was all part of the aura of superiority he liked to project. He he felt like he needed to get in into the minds of the competition, a bit like Senna had. And they they very much bought into that projection. The 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 assumption of superiority is one thing. But the projecting of that superiority is a, is a further step. And it's one which Michael always sought to take. It was calculated, but it was also honest. Yeah, it's interesting. I, 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 wonder, if, I wonder if drivers maybe don't act like that now because they're more, they're more PR trained or more concerned about social media reaction. Who knows? Yeah, I can't, I can't quite imagine Max Verstappen saying that about um, you know, a number two driver at one of the rival teams. But... As Matt says, maybe the world is poorer for that. Uh, the last team to hold a launch for the new season was Arrows, which held its event so close to the start of the season that its new car couldn't be there because every chassis it had was already en route to Australia. But Arrows still held a launch because it had a massive new sponsorship deal to announce with the mobile phone network Orange. The deal was believed to be £70 million across three years and team boss Tom Walkinshaw said Arrows would now be one of the best funded teams on the grid. He said, it's a huge commitment on behalf of Orange and we will work hard to make sure they get a return on it. We will establish Arrows as a top five team within the next 24 months. Behind McLaren and Ferrari, everything is up for grabs. Mark, we've heard, we'd heard a lot of this talk from Walkinshaw actually back when he signed Damon Hill for 1997. Was this Arrows goal of becoming a top five team, was it ever realistic? Maybe in the era would just come out of it would have been yeah they, that that was the era in which Benetton became a top team but this this was the new automotive era you know the money and the the size of teams was was going exponential and the money was just being shoveled into expanded facilities and stuff and what was happening at Ferrari and McLaren was of a, a, a different order really so arrows teams like that were being left behind and it never really transcended their, their small-time status. The Orange deal didn't last. It was scaled back, and they, the team dwindled to nothing soon after. 
Walkinshaw made another claim that I think warrants a little inspection. Mark mentioned uh, Benetton there. Well, Tom used uh, Benetton's development into a title-winning team during his time there as an example of what was possible for Arrows. And this is how he said it. He said, when I went to Benetton at the beginning of the 1990s, it was a back-of-the-field team, but we turned it around and won a world championship in three years. I don't see any reason why we can't establish this team in the top three or four in the same timescale. So, Matt, simple question for you. Do you remember the days when Benetton was at the back of the grid in the early 90s? No, because it didn't happen. It's just nonsense. <laughs> that is just a completely flawed comparison. No, it's just wrong. Arrows in 99 coming into 2000, it was like, I actually had a look at the points to kind of compare this. Arrows scored one point in 99. It had been absolutely rubbish. Walkinshaw had kind of blown his chances. He had Hill, he had John Barnard. He hadn't turned Arrows into anything with, with those uh, on his side. Yeah, this is, if he, the best comparison is a team like kind of AGS at the end of the 80s, and that was never going anywhere. Um the situation Benetton was in when Walkinshaw and everyone else turned up was kind of similar to where Jordan was at the end of 99. Benetton was winning races when the top teams got something wrong. And by plugging in, yeah, some more resources, some stronger organization, and then an absolute genius once-in-a-lifetime driver like Michael Schumacher, Benetton became a championship-winning team. And then as soon as that genius driver was removed, it started falling apart and everyone of significance left soon afterwards. So, no, there's no comparison that works between early 90s Benetton and late 90s Arrows and all the orange deal was going to do was make the car significantly prettier for a little while. Correct. Uh, Now let's move on. I mentioned this at the start. A bizarre war of words broke out in the run-up to the Australian Grand Prix and it carried on over the Australian weekend between Eddie Irvine and Ron Dennis at McLaren. Irvine upset Dennis by writing in his 1999 book Life in the Fast Lane. I have a copy of that book which I acquired from a an Amazon seller uh, for about a pound and it's got an an autograph in the front of it. I'm fascinated to know if that's somebody who put a fake one in there to sell it to someone for a higher amount of money or if Eddie really did sell uh, sign a load of copies and they're now available on the internet for a pound. Um, but anyway, that book is, is quite good. It details Eddie's 99 season with some flashbacks to earlier in his Ferrari time. But in there, he says that McLaren approached him about a drive for 2000 Uh, He said Adrian Newey asked him on the grid at the French Grand Prix if he'd like the chance to beat Michael Schumacher. When talk started, Irvine said Dennis was keen to have him. However, Irvine uh, said that in the end, Ron told him that while he felt he was better than David Coulthard, there was not a big enough difference between them to risk making the change. And Ron felt he owed Coulthard loyalty for all the bad luck he'd had at McLaren. Irvine expanded on this after the release of the book when he was asked about it during pre-season and he said that he told McLaren he wouldn't be kicked in the balls over money just because they had the best car. He added, if teams take advantage of you to save money, you can't respect them. So Mark, we'll uh, we'll detail some more of what happened here in a moment. But firstly, I just want to ask you, can you imagine Eddie Irvine driving for McLaren? Could that have worked? Not really. They they would have functioned okay, actually. <laughs> you know, they, they're both professionals in the end, but Eddie would have been a more disruptive presence than Ron had got used to with Mika and DC. He wouldn't have been able to beat Mika on equal terms, but he'd have worked hard at the mind games as he sought to compete with them. I don't think that would have had much effect on Mika as he was pretty bulletproof in that regard, but it would still have created some internal waves and a lot of tension. Uh, to Irv, that tension would have been water off a duck's back, but... 
for Ron, it would have been a, a very suboptimal situation. Um, you know, if one's full of extreme personalities and how they gel and, and react to each other when in the same team is one of the fascinations of the sport for me. But that that one would have been a great <laughs> case study. And Ron, Ron would have tried hard to make it work in his own way, I'm sure. But deep down, Irv and Ron, they, they would just disliked each other. And I'm pretty sure of that. And they just there'd be no getting away from that. Yeah, I think uh, it would have been great to see. But I imagine the harder Ron tried to make it work, the worse it would have gone. Um, so this story rumbled on. And before the F1 paddock made it to Australia, McLaren's Martin Whitmarsh acknowledged the stories that were coming out. But he said money was never discussed with Irvine because talks didn't get that far. However, Whitmarsh said Irvine made clear at an early stage he wouldn't be coming cheap. Whitmarsh said if both sides had decided they had a future together, he was sure They would have worked out a deal, but McLaren decided that sticking with Coulthard and Hakkinen was the best thing to do. Irvine picked the story back up when he got to Australia, saying he told McLaren he wasn't going to drive for the sort of figures Coulthard is supposed to earn because it's not as if Ron can't afford it and you can't get people cheap. Uh, Mark, you you look like a man who wants to interject. Yeah, it's just that, that whole... Irv's whole purpose of going to Ferrari was to increase his commercial worth. He knew that. He knew he'd do, just do you know three or four seasons there, massively increase his profile, massively have the spotlight on him, and then he would convert that to money. And so he really wouldn't have been that interested in, in going to McLaren for DC money. That wasn't the point of a, doing those four years at Ferrari. Um, he was quite ruthlessly cynical with himself very self-aware and really smart and um, cashing in his chips at Jaguar was much more what he had in mind than, um, than, than than compromising on the salary for the sake of a competitive car at this stage in his career yeah at least he was honest um obviously the more Irvine talked about this the more annoyed Ron got so uh, Ron went even stronger in Australia saying it was wrong of Irvine to say money was a factor in him not going to McLaren. Ron admitted there were talks with Irvine, but he said financial discussions never took place. Eddie may be a colourful character, but he shouldn't rewrite history. Ron said he was uncomfortable to see Eddie's view that he was the one dictating the circumstances under which he would take the drive. And while Ron was impressed with Irvine during their discussions, he said he was now disappointed to see the way Irvine was acting. Dennis agreed with uh, Eddie that McLaren could afford to pay what we want to who we want and that money had never motivated a decision on drivers. Irvine responded to criticism for bringing the talks out into the public domain in his book by saying that he only decided to put it in there once people started asking him about it. And he said because he was the only person on his side that knew about it, the leaks must have been coming from McLaren. Matt, this I mean, this is I love this. This is brilliant. Are you surprised Irvine and McLaren got so worked up about this? No, not at all, given the characters <laughs> involved. It's it's hilarious. We, we talked earlier about Schumacher trying to project the superiority. I was going to say complex, but the superiority he both had and felt. Just pure superiority. Just literally superiority. The way Ron Dennis talked about driver discussions and who McLaren had or hadn't signed or why, I'm thinking back to their approach to Damon Hill that that, that didn't happen as well. Um, It's like 
Ron's McLaren superiority complex. He wants to show that not only does it make the fastest car that's going to win by miles, it also can sign who it wants and it can sign drivers who should never work at McLaren. And then he'd somehow, through his sheer management genius, make these these pieces fit this puzzle. I'm thinking of his uh, hotline to South America, meaning he thought he could make Juan Pablo Montoya work in the team later as well. Trying to sign Eddie Irvine just seems like a bit of masochism on Ron Dennis's part just to just to prove a point. Although admittedly, I said earlier, Coulthard wasn't very good during 99. Irvine was, you know, he didn't win the title in the end, but he, he stepped up a level during 99. Given the kind of people they were, given how much Irvine took a little bit of enjoyment out of winding situations up as well, it was obvious that this was going to go this way once it started being talked about. It does make me wonder if they had signed Irvine, how long would that have actually lasted? Would they have even got through a season? Yeah, I think Irvine would have uh, found a way to get the biggest payoff possible out of that um, had had that had that deal ever been signed. Yeah, that's a good point. It'd have ended up being a one-year deal, wouldn't it? Um, no matter how long the contract said. So uh, during quite a lengthy takedown of Eddie Irvine, uh, Dennis made a comment that caught people's attention and started another driver market rumour. Ron said... This concept that we clone our drivers and we do not like colourful drivers, personalities, those who paint their hair, wear weird baggy clothes or swear is ludicrous. We will put the two drivers we want, whether they are poor communicators, ugly or have no dress sense. As you might have guessed, the references to personalities, painted hair and weird baggy clothes started speculation that McLaren might be interested in Jacques Villeneuve. Uh, Villeneuve got asked about this and said that if there was an opening at McLaren, then he would have thought he would be on their shopping list, but he said he'd not spoken with them. Mercedes boss Norbert Haug also denied having any talks with Villeneuve for 2001. Norbert said uh, Coulthard deserved the chance to make a breakthrough at McLaren, and he said if the team were considering replacements, it would be with a driver closer to the family, like Ricardo Zonta, who'd previously raced for Mercedes in sports cars, junior driver Nick Heidfeld, who was on his way to Prost, or McLaren test driver Olivier Panis. Mark, this isn't a trick question. Uh, There's no wrong answer, but who would have been less of a fit at McLaren in this era, Villeneuve or Irvine? (laughs) Um, I think Irvine probably on balance, but um, yeah, neither would have been great, would they? (laughs) (laughs) You know, that, that... Thing that the point that Ron makes about he wasn't that bothered about how they they look it it comes with a proviso if if they were as quick as Hakkinen or Ayrton Senna he would have tolerated it he would he wouldn't be that bothered but you know you, you, the, the, I'm sorry sorry about this Glenn but Jacques Villeneuve wasn't in that category um, <laughs> it's a debate for another so, time okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah and ne- neither was Eddie Irvin but you know at least have um, more or less acknowledged this but it, it, it's yeah they, 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 it wouldn't have worked <laughs> either of those two people yeah yeah they're not they don't look like McLaren people do they there's a story in Coulthard's book that he said at one point I think he tried to have the hairs on his neck lasered off so he wouldn't have to shave them as often um, so that was the kind of pressure McLaren drivers were under for, for presentation. Uh, Villeneuve used this speculation, though, about his future to put pressure on BAR, which was heading into its second season after that disastrous first year where they failed to score a point. We've covered that whole year 
uh, in detail back in Series 4. Ahead of the first race of 2000, with BAR now Honda's works team, Villeneuve said, I didn't come here to hang around at the back of the grid. I came here to win races, and I hope I can achieve that with BAR Honda. But if we have another bad season, I will need very good reasons to stay. Matt, given what BAR had shown up to this point, and the team was built around Villeneuve, let's not forget, was he entitled to put pressure on BAR in this way heading into year two? Yeah, I think he was. It was it was hard to tell at times during that first BAR season because the car really held together long enough for him to show it. But he was quick. He put some really good qualifying laps in that year. It wasn't his finest year in F1. I think his finest year in F1 might have been about to come. I thought it was great in 2000. Um, but yeah, it, he was complicit in BAR being rubbish because it was all the kind of hubris around his his entourage thinking they could create a new team. He could walk out of Williams into it and win the first race. That was kind of part of the Villeneuve vibe of the time. So he couldn't say he's completely blameless in it. But he had a reasonable expectation for it not to be as shambolic as it was in 99. And he was he had more value in the driver market at this point than he would have later in his career, certainly. So, yeah, other people would have wanted him at that point. No doubt about that. Yeah, and I, I think that's right. I think that the, the whole thing about the team being set up around him, he'd been convinced into leaving Williams to do this new project. So, yeah, he was entitled to put pressure on them. And it was... It was lacking in so many areas, and I'm sure as he as he came to realise this, he was displeased. So everything he'd he'd touched so far in his career had turned to gold. You know, IndyCar, Williams, pole on his debut, world champion, sophomore season. This was the first real stumble in his career, and the first hiccup. And it wasn't disastrous, but it was the first thing that just hadn't turned to gold straight away. And he'd been sold this by Craig Pollock, his manager, as, 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 as this would take him to another level. He's, he was entering very choppy waters instead. And, and I'm also, I'm sure he felt some responsibility to the people who joined Craig's vision. You know, the sponsors, Jock Clear, his engineer, other key people on the team. So I think he'd have been reluctant to just give up on it and go and try and get a McLaren drive or whatever. But he will have been conflicted, I'm sure. And a little confused. He's a good guy, but I think he was still very young at that point. Now, fortunately, BAR broke its duck first time out in 2000 with uh, Villeneuve came home fourth and teammate Zonta was promoted to sixth after Mikasalo Sauber was excluded. Villeneuve said afterwards it felt great to finally get a result after the hard work of 99 and that scoring points would bring good energy to the team. Speaking about the second season in an interview with Motorsport magazine years later, Jacques said the 2000 car wasn't as quick as the 99 car, but because it was more reliable, BAR were at least able to score some points and start moving in the right direction. Mark, after the nightmare of that first season, as Matt mentioned, you know, the car constantly breaking down, was sacrificing a bit of speed to get some reliability and get some results, was that a sensible trade-off for BAR? Yeah, they'd gone a bit aggressive on lightweighting in 99, knowing they'd be at a power disadvantage with the, the customer Supertech. Um, with proper Honda power, they didn't need to be so marginal, but that wasn't really the major source of their shortfall. It was part of it, but it was mainly aerodynamics. So aerodynamically, it just wasn't a front-running car. It was okay. It, was, it wasn't deeply flawed or anything, but just it was no McLaren or Ferrari, nowhere near. And you can play about with a weight as much as you want, but they, they weren't really fully in the game yet. So while BAR started to look respectable at last, uh, Jaguar's first race looks like a fine impersonation of BAR's first season. Lead driver Irvine qualified a very respectable seventh, but after dropping back a few spots, he spun out when avoiding Pedro De La Rosa's crashing arrows early on. 
Things were even worse for Johnny Herbert, who qualified on the penultimate row of the grid and retired on lap two with a clutch problem. Herbert called it the worst weekend he'd ever had in F1. Irvine spent the entire weekend being very upfront about how much work Jaguar had to do. After the race, he said, There is no magic wand for this. I knew what to expect from the first day I drove the car. F1 is about physics, and our physics are not quite there yet. We have a long way to go. Irvine compared Jaguar's situation to when he first he joined Ferrari in 1996, saying he'd seen it all before, so he knew what Jaguar needed to do and how long it would take. Team boss Neil Ressler said... Jaguar's problems were proving tougher to fix than expected and taking longer than they should have, but he felt uh, and he felt the team wasn't operating at peak efficiency yet. There's management speak if ever I heard it. Mark, after all the highs Stewart enjoyed in 1999, was this a bit of a reality check for Jaguar? And I guess by that I mean Ford. Yeah, I don't think the corporate side of Ford would have been ready to hear it though. This was a classic case of corporate hubris and the very common we've been successful in a much bigger more serious arena than f1 and every problem is just a management problem and we're the best managers on earth so it'll be successful <laughs> completely not understanding that specialization of knowledge is so much more intricate and the implications that has on how you go about being successful in f1 and our own gary anderson who is technical director at stewart and jaguar and who lived in that awful transition that forcing of an alien culture onto the team, almost willfully breaking what it had taken a few years to build up. He will be able to tell you all about it far better than me. But yeah, totally wrong-headed approach. And before Ford took over, it had been an increasingly effective little team, a startup team that had really come on very quickly, already achieved quite a lot in a short space of time. After Ford left, it became Red Bull, and we all know what happened to that. So the only horrible underachieving bit in between was Ford. And a correlation doesn't always equal causation, but in this case, it definitely does. Yeah, we've had Gary write a few things for the race website over the last few years about the, the start of the Jaguar era, how quickly Ford broke that team, and also about the highs of 99 and, and how well that season went when Ford made a big power step, the car worked really well, and Barrichello was leading races for Stewart. And it's one of those situations where, as a, as a pure theory, you think, inject some more cash into this team and then and rebrand it as Jaguar as well, and suddenly the white car's a green car doing what it did, but even better, and... Yeah, Gary's thoughts on that are well worth digging out on the website and rereading because it's a little bit of a heartbreaker to, to see how quickly that was that was destroyed. You have just summed up the, the Ford business plan. It was a bit more money, paint them green, win lots. Um, <laughs> didn't work. If they'd just done that, if they just um, put the money in and left it alone uh, and rebranded, that would have been fine. Yeah, yeah. that would have been fine. It's But they, they decided to run it themselves. <laughs> yeah, interfere massively. Uh, we mentioned there that Johnny Herbert was down the back of the grid with only two cars behind him. And one of those cars was debutante Jensen Button. So let's come back to Jensen. He had a nightmare Saturday. He crashed in practice. And after his team rushed to repair the car for qualifying, he suffered fuel pickup problems on his first two runs. His remaining runs were affected by yellow and red flags. So he ended up 21st. But Williams felt he would have been 13th, which would have been just a couple of places behind teammate Ralph Schumacher if he'd been able to finish his final lap. In a race of attrition, Button worked his way up to sixth in the closing stages and he said in his book, For a glorious moment, I thought I was going to score points first time out. But it wasn't to be as his BMW engine expired 12 laps from the end. Button said after the race he was ecstatic with how it went and he said it lived up to the dreams I had of being a Formula 1 driver when I was a kid. 
He said he was pleased to prove a lot of people wrong. And in his book, he added, I'd proved that I wasn't just this lucky amateur who happened to fluke his way into Formula One. Matt, as we mentioned earlier, Martin Brundle said uh, it took him until mid-season to, to revise his opinion about Button. But do you think Jensen showed enough in his debut to c- convince you that he was up to the task? Yeah, in the race, absolutely. As I said, I, I was being a button sceptic out of sheer arrogant teenage contrariness going into this weekend. And when he was when he ended up having a rubbish qualifying result, I did. I was like, yeah, vindicated. This is too soon for him. His race pace was great, wasn't it? And he, and he looked very composed and like he'd been there a very long time. And several of his, I think Brazil was quite similar from memory. He had a bit of a slump after that, but... So, Later in the season, you saw more and more of his potential come out, and it was the circumstances in which he was doing the impressing that really counted. The fact it was his very first race, it was in damp and changeable conditions later in the season that he impressed, or is it the, the epic circuits at Spa and Suzuka? All those things that aren't just run of the mill but show you a driver was really special. That was where he was really able to to switch the kind of raw talent performance on. So. Yeah, really impressive race. I don't know if I admitted it or not at the time. I was too drunk or tired to know in, in retrospect, but um, yet more evidence that I was wrong about most things then, and I'm lucky to have both a career and friends. <laughs> Before we move on, let's also quickly hear Button's recollection of joining the F1 grid. At the recent Goodwood Festival of Speed, the racist Simon Patterson was able to tell Jensen about this podcast, so he summarised all the things we've talked about here, including the debate around if Button was ready and running in the points on his debut. And Jensen couldn't resist sharing his thoughts on V10 engines as well. Well, I, I was too young and inexperienced, but you know, I was off the drive, and you can't turn it down at that age. Um, you never know if you're going to get another opportunity. So, yeah, I'd, I'd much rather have been more experienced. You know, with the guys now, they get to do a lot of sim work. Yeah. We didn't have simulators then, um, so it was pretty tricky. Uh, my first race, I was in sixth, um, and then the, I had an engine failure. So, yes. we would have been on for points points only went to 6th place then not 10th yeah. like now you know so people say oh he scored points in his first race he finished 10th <laughs> we were fighting for 6th to get a point and then my second race I got a point so I think I proved everyone that I was ready by my second race um, but no I, I loved that era of the sport obviously they were slower than the cars now but you know you had a tyre war you had uh, V10 engines super lightweight cars yeah it was great and uh, I definitely miss the sound of the V10. I think the big thing with endurance racing, which I really like, is you have lots of different types of engines, lots of different sounds, and obviously this. Yeah. That's just about to get very loud. Um, so yeah, and I, I think that's, that's so important in a racing car. Former BMW Motorsport boss Mario Tyson recently reflected on this weekend uh, on F1's Beyond the Grid podcast like we mentioned earlier. He said that Button's engine failure was as expected because BMW went into the weekend without managing to get an engine to complete a race distance either on track or even on the dyno. That made what happened to the other Williams of Ralph Schumacher a huge shock as his car kept running to the end to claim third place behind a Ferrari 1-2. 
Ralph said it was an amazing result and he said that as well as having a better engine, Williams had solved all the problems its 1999 car had, so the FW22 was much nicer to drive. BMW chief Gerhard Berger tried to dampen expectations again as he feared that getting a podium on debut would mean Williams and BMW would be expected to be at that level at every race. But he also said that the gap to the top teams was not as big as he expected. Tyson said on Beyond the Grid that it was a lucky result because the other teams were not ready for the start of the season and he felt it took BMW half a season to get on top of performance, reliability and also things like parts and logistics off track. Mark, did this result make you think that maybe BMW were over-egging the caution about their potential performance? Well, it was an attrition-aided third, wasn't it? it was, and there was a distant third, so... No, it's about what we should have been expecting, I'd say. It wasn't going to be finishing third every time. The Jordans and the BARs looked at least as quick, if not quicker. But actually, looking at it, um, it was a pretty mediocre field, really, once he got past Ferrari McLaren. Benetton hadn't delivered a great car. Prost and Arrows were undercooked. Sabre was very low-key. So they should definitely have been beating that lot, and they were. So it was about right. But it wasn't yet any threat to the front runners. We mentioned there that Ralph joined the two Ferraris on the podium, but in the early laps of the race, it was the McLarens running first and second, with eventual winner Michael Schumacher giving chase in third. But both McLarens were out before lap 20, both suffering a repeat of the engine problem that had struck both cars on Saturday as well. A dejected Ron Dennis said after the race that it was a pneumatic failure in the valve gear on all four occasions, which hadn't come up once in testing, so it was probably the result of a small specification change. He said it would be easy to fix, but he said it was hard to take because McLaren was already dropping its pace early in the race because it felt so in control, so he felt a comfortable result had been lost. Matt, we had some we had this from some of our audience as well in, in the memories at the start um, that we didn't include. Lots of people talked about McLaren's reliability and how this was a repeat of the double DNF from the 1999 opener. But was this one perhaps more painful for McLaren? I mentioned there that Ron was utterly dejected in his interviews afterwards because this time it was Schumacher that scooped up the win instead. In retrospect, and in sheer points terms, yes. At the time, I'm not sure it felt like that. Just because McLaren had got the job done the previous two seasons, and it had, it had let a lot of points slip across 98 and 99 as well, but you, it still made it over the line both times. Okay, Schumacher broke his leg in 99, so it was up against Irvine instead. That was an easier task. But you, given McLaren's pace, it still looked like a tall order for Schumacher to actually win the 99 title. I would say when he, at the time he broke his leg. So this, the feeling at this point, I would say for me personally, was still that McLaren had enough of a margin. Its race pace showed that it could afford a few niggles. It was going to be more challenging because the Ferrari did look better again, but it was probably still going to be okay. That feeling disappeared pretty quickly as this sort of thing carried on over the following races though. Now, while there was a lot of talk about Ferrari looking much stronger for 2000, as Matt kind of hinted there, it became quite apparent in the races that followed. Ron said he didn't buy it in Australia because McLaren outqualified the Ferraris and had control of the race. And he doubted that Schumacher was going deliberately slowly behind them to make his own day more difficult. Mika Hakkinen didn't share that view. He said that when he retired from the race the previous year, in, so in 99, he was still happy because McLaren had a one-second pace advantage over the field. But in 2000, Mika said, this year the gap is gone. I know it will be very tight and these are critical points to give away as a gift. Schumacher was talking up Ferrari's chances as well. After winning 
the first race of the season. For the first time since his last championship year with Benetton in 1995, he said he'd known since the first time he sat in the 2000 Ferrari that it was a car to battle for the world championship with. He said he was so confident that when Hakkinen was on pole on Saturday, Michael's view was let him celebrate because I will be celebrating the victory tomorrow. He said after five years of fighting to get to the front, things were finally looking great for Ferrari. And he added, we will be competitive everywhere and we will have developments coming already to make us even faster. Irvine recalls how pleased Schumacher was with the car out of the box too. He said on Sky's Legends of F1 programme that when, when they got to Australia, Schumacher told him the new car was amazing compared to the one they'd raced as teammates in 1999. Mark, Ron Dennis might have wanted to talk down uh, Ferrari's performance and result, but was it as clear as Michael was making out that Ferrari were coming into 2000 in much better shape than they'd been in the previous years? They were in much better shape. Whether they're going to have the pace, the outright pace of McLaren wasn't certain, but they were certainly a lot closer than the previous three years. Ferrari brought themselves into title contention with a combination of Michael's brilliant, great strategy and a very productive development program. But each of those times, it started behind the eight ball at the beginning of the season and had a lot of catching up to do on raw performance. And this time, that, that wasn't the case. The F1 2000 was a big step on from the 99 car, had a wider V-angle in the engine for lower C of G, helping it with the tyres, which is one of its weaknesses. And that whole technical team was coming into maturity, the Rory Byrne-led technical team. It was the first really uncompromised Byrne-era Ferrari. And it was it looked very close, at least on pace, to the McLaren right from the start. And it, you know, the, the races went on. It became apparent it had slightly different traits, so it might be a whisper slower at some places, but it was quicker at others. And on raw performance, the two cars were very, very closely matched. And so it was it was going to come down to operations, reliability, driver performance, strategy. And yeah, they were very, very much back in the game properly. And amazingly, Ron wasn't done with taking shots at Ferrari. This is after Mac the McLarens have broken down and Ferrari's won and Ron's on the offensive. Uh, he accused them of making Barrichello a sacrificial lamb when his strategy was switched to a two-stopper in an attempt to jump him ahead of the Jordan of Heinz Held Frentzen. In the end, it worked out because Frentzen's car hit trouble, but Ron felt Ferrari were misleading Barrichello by trying to convince him this was some supreme strategy, and he said if they truly believe that to be the case, then they really don't have their mathematics right. Unsurprisingly, Ferrari's Ross Braun didn't take those comments well. Uh, Ross said, I'm not going to explain our strategy to Ron. He obviously doesn't understand it. I think our record shows we've got a better grasp of what goes on in a race than he does. So it's a bit strange to make those sorts of statements. Ross went on to explain that rather than being a supreme strategy, Ferrari had nothing to lose. So it took a punt with Barrichello because the worst case scenario was that Rubens would stay behind Frentzen, which is what would have happened if he'd stayed on the same one-stop strategy as the Jordan anyway. Ross said you either sit there and watch the back of another car for the race or you take a chance of something working out. Now, Matt, if you had to pick someone uh, to do your race strategies back in this era, do you want Ron Dennis or Ross Braun? How is that even a question? How, what, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Is there any choice where you'd pick Ron Dennis over Ross Braun for any aspect of operating anything in F1? Uh, which is not actually purely to slate Ron Dennis. I just think Ross Braun was exceptionally good at, at what he achieved and particularly the Benetton 
approach to strategies when Braun was there and then the Ferrari approach to strategies it was just night and day different to what anyone else was doing it made Williams look flat-footed in the mid-90s at Benetton it then made McLaren look the same in the late 90s I can't think of a McLaren strategy in the late 90s that made you go oh that's a good trick that was really inventive that they pulled that off McLaren won races by being really fast designing great cars and having someone as quick as Hacken and driving them the, the closest I can think of to a McLaren strategy turning around a race would be Nürburgring 98. And that was more about hacking and staying out longer and doing really strong low fuel laps to leapfrog Schumacher there. McLaren didn't win races with great strategies. Ross Braun run teams did. So I don't. I, I think at the time, I don't remember this, this Barrichello strategy looking like a masterstroke at all, but Bar- Braun's logic of may as well try it holds, holds true as well, doesn't it? So yeah, Ron, you were wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree. They might as well try something. Uh, if anyone can think of a uh, of a race where McLaren pulled off a genius strategy, um, you don't necessarily. I'm sure it wasn't Ron's idea, but we'll give it to him. Uh, if you can think of one from this era, <laughs> join our Twitter community. The the link is in the description of this episode, and go in there and post and say, "What about this race? How could you forget that one?" Uh, we'd love we'd love to know. Matt's put his hand up. Does that mean you thought of one? Uh, yeah. No, it's it's kind of the opposite. It's just it's a semi-apology to Ron Dennis. <laughs> I doubt he's listening. Really, I think you're okay. No, well, I, yeah, probably not. Um, McLaren didn't need the strategies most of the time, did they? Because they had the faster car, and not, and these Ross Braun moments for genius were often because you know Benetton was not as quick as Williams, or Ferrari wasn't as quick as McLaren, so they had to do something inventive. But Braun was still pulling those off when Ferrari was dominant too. I'm thinking mm. the Manu Core four stopper in 2004. McLaren just wasn't wasn't doing that kind of thing it maybe it felt it was above it that would be quite a wrong thing to think wouldn't it yeah like you say ross braun run teams uh always seem to maximize the refueling era uh let's finish with a big story that started to emerge as a rumor during the australian grand prix weekend and then became official a few days after the race and that was renault coming back to f1 and doing it by buying benetton Renault had been out of F1 in a works capacity since leaving at the end of 1997. There were two main reasons it wanted to come back as a team owner rather than just an engine supplier this time. Renault Sport chairman Patrick Four said, Returning as an engine supplier wouldn't have made much sense as we have already won everything there is to win. So he said Renault wanted to do the only thing that was missing and that was winning the Constructors' Championship under the colours of the Renault team. Renault chairman and CEO uh, Louis Schweitzer also hinted that Renault didn't think it got enough exposure from only having the best engine in F1. And he said that this time we will do a better job of telling the world about our accomplishments, which would be a lot easier to do if it's a Renault team winning. Mark, we've we've spent plenty of this episode mentioning all the manufacturers that were here. You know, by 2000, the manufacturer era is in full swing. Honda and BMW are back. Ford owns a team. Matt mentioned, I think, that Toyota were coming in soon. How big was it for F1 to have Renault coming back, given all it had achieved just a few years earlier? Yeah, it was really confirmation that um, Formula One was really pulling them in. Um, Peugeot pulled out, but they got all these other ones coming in, and it was. Such was F1's profile, and it was still expanding fast. It was there was very much an attitude of um, it's not whether we can afford to be in, but can we afford not to be in attitude in it from the manufacturers. It, it, I mean, it was as cheap as chips from their perspective. They could have all this global coverage and this 
glamour association for a, a tiny fraction of the cost of like a Mondeo model update, you know, a new, a new window line and new grill on a Mondeo. Literally, it would, that, that, it would be a fraction of that cost. But yeah, Renault in particular had this glorious history from very recently in, you know, winning its world title as recently as 97, as you said. So yeah, this was going to be a very positive upgrade for the former Benetton team. And as we know, it uh, had a, a little, it sort of slightly tricky path to get there. But um, yeah, it did get there in the end. It's amazing to think, actually, isn't it, that this was still the era where a manufacturer could come in and say, right, give us a few years and we're going to be winning championships. And and it, it sort of actually happened. Renault have been back in F1 now since since 2016 and, and really, well, as Alpine now, I think I think they're flatlining. Uh, Matt, before we go, uh, I want to pick your brains. How did you feel about the influx of manufacturers? Did that did that float your boat or were you more uh, bemoaning the loss of independence? I liked it as a concept. I liked the I, I thought it would make F1 more competitive across the board with more big spending teams coming in. In retrospect, I, it destroyed a lot of what I loved about F1 in, in the late 90s. The the rubbish teams vanished and I've always had a fondness for a rubbish team, but also I've talked a lot on this podcast over the series about how much I loved 1997 and some of the teams that had their kind of moments of glory in 97. A lot of that was tyre war based, but those teams were were close enough to do it and small enough to have a bit of romance about them. Um, 99 is another season I've got a lot, a lot of fondness for. And the biggest reason for that is what Jordan and Stewart could do up against McLaren and Ferrari that year. And like Mark said earlier in the earlier in this episode, straight away in 2000, everyone apart from McLaren and Ferrari was to some degree rubbish. And that just isn't as appealing to me, really. And a bunch of manufacturers coming in and spending a lot of money was one thing, but it also brought in a lot of egos and opinions about how an F1 team should be wrong, should be run. Politics and most as of, well. Yeah. And, mo- and like we said about Jaguar, most of those were just wrong and nonsense and misguided <laughs> and arrogant. And then, yeah, you, you swapped a lot of ind- interesting independent teams who knew what they were doing for a lot of... Um, big spending manufacturer teams that some people did quite well of in salary out of in salary terms but yeah didn't achieve very much and didn't didn't bring as much fun and intrigue and romance to it as the kind of the Jordans and the Stewarts had yeah I think um I liked yeah I like the era where you had you know hard- hardcore professional race teams with decent engines available to them either as a works deal or a decent customer deal but I do understand a point Renault were making here which was they felt they didn't get the recognition beyond the the kind of hardcore F1 fans for for having the best engine during the majority of the 1990s. Uh, so it it wasn't that wasn't going to be the model um, into the 21st century, was it? Because you know, Mark said, okay, there was value for money in being in F1, but you still had to get the exposure back for it, and just being. Um, just being an engine supplier didn't do that. To most people, Williams won all those championships in the 90s, not Williams Renault. Um, so it felt like so this was the manufacturers realizing two things. We want the exposure. And as we talked about with Ford, we want the control, whether that's a good thing or not. So it was it was a shame to see the end of that. But we'll leave it there for Australia 2000 before we start running through the entire decade and the manufacturer era. Thanks to Matt and to Mark for joining us for this one. Next time out, we're dropping a couple of cylinders and making our detour into the V8 era as we head back to 2010 and the first Korean Grand Prix, which turned that year's memorable title fight on its head.
Athletic.